not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I'm Troy Harkin. And this is our first look at The Twilight Zone. This was a black and white series that ran from 1959 to 1964. And we may touch on the movie from 1983, the later series, and many other things. This is part one of a two-part episode. And David, I've got to say, I, I am so excited. I this like this this is right up there with we came out of the gates with Planet of the Apes, which was something I needed to do. We did recently the Batman sixty-six, which was another one that like I, I absolutely had to do. And now we're doing the Twilight Zone. I feel like if if we had to, I would be happy after after Twilight Zone. It's like it was like we, we we've sort of done it all, but we we can continue. We can continue. And actually, sorry to interrupt, you should continue. No, don't worry. And I think all of us should have been wearing a golden earring. Thank you. Oh, oh my God. You went Thank there? You. you went there. I Jeez. did. I went there All and right. I'm coming back. I'm okay. like a uh, old fart lost. But anyway, that's a whole other yes. Twilight Zone episode. Uh, so we are recording this on Sunday, April 16, 2023. And part one is scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, April 29th. And part two on May 13th. We have a special guest, Tom Elliott, from the Twilight Zone podcast. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Okay, and again, I'm 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 going a little off script here. If people, if you need a spoiler alert for a show that was on over 50 years ago, I mean, really? But okay, I'm I'm pushing the spoiler alert button. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Yeah, we almost need a best before date on the spoiler alert. But um, thanks, Troy. We're recording the session via Zoom in the interest transparency. This is our first meeting with Tom. Um, Troy listened to the Twilight Zone uh, podcast episode on the Planet of the Apes and was hooked. And Troy introduced me to the podcast. We're glad to have such an expert and fan on our show. Let's introduce our special guest. Tom Elliott began the Twilight Zone podcast in 2010, intending to record short 10-minute stream of consciousness thoughts after each episode viewing. As the production quality of each episode increased, so did the diversity of show content. As well as episode reviews, the podcast grew to include short story readings, book reviews, event coverage, and interviews. Guests such as Anne Serling, 
the daughter of Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling, Earl Holliman, the first actor to ever appear in the Twilight Zone, plus many others have all graced the airwaves of the Twilight Zone podcast. The Twilight Zone podcast has become the definitive and longest running podcast about the landmark show on the web. Welcome, Tom. There, Tom. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, it's always nice to make some new podcast and friends. So thank you for having me. Um, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, before we get into our Twilight Zone episode, Troy and I would like to know about our guests' early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our first-time guests. Tom, we want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. In the feature review on IMDb titled Spookiness and 60s and Anthology Series Equals the Best Damn Thing Ever, Catfish Opinions from April 30th, 2020 writes, This show never gets old. It ages extremely well. The psychological horror of this is so much better than any CGI horror you'll see these days. Every episode, or at least all the good ones, have a spooky element or something out of the ordinary, a twist ending, and a moral or something to think about. There are so many of these that are just so good. Rod Serling is a Greek god. Trey Bien. Tom, what was your first speculative genre memory? Well, David, I think, I hope I'm not going to bore your listeners with this, but I, I maybe I can give a different perspective because I think you've already done a show on Planet of the Apes. But my first memory is that the Planet of the Apes TV show, I understand, didn't take off very well in the U.S., but the thing is, it was a massive hit over here in the UK. Now, it was actually made before I was born, but I have, you know, really kind of vivid memories of Planet of the Apes from when I was a kid. And Ape Mania in England and, and the rest of the UK was real. You know, there was uh, that show would be repeated and repeated. There was even like a live, like stadium show. A Planet of the Apes stadium show that wow. they would put on. Yeah. With like people, you know, riding horses, wearing the ape outfits, and there was a storyline to it and everything. Um, so this, this was all going on in England, probably when America had canceled the show and had moved on, you know, to, to whatever came next. Um, but the funny thing is that that really shaped, you know, that's the first thing I remember. Um, but years later, when Planet of the Apes, the, the movie was on TV, I thought, okay, I know Planet of the Apes. You know, I was a Planet of the Apes fan when, when I was a kid. And I watched it, and I realized that I had never seen Planet of the Apes. My love of Planet of the Apes was all based on that TV show because it was so huge in England at the time. So, so yeah, I think that's my, my first memory. Um, thanks a lot, Tom. And sometimes it's the same answer, but it might not be. But what was the first speculative genre thing that you actually fell in love with and why? I think it was probably Richard Donner's Superman. And a massive part of that 
was because of Christopher Reeve. You know, there are there are certain performances in our lives that I think we just hold up as as absolute gold and certain celebrities who you know we actually miss when they're gone and we're, we're sad that they're not around to kind of have that third act of their career and you know Christopher Reeve's life uh turned out to be quite tragic but I just think when you go back to the first two movies especially Superman 1 and 2 and you see how he played that part with such sincerity. You know, he was an actor's actor, and he treated Superman like it was Shakespeare, you know, and took it with that that seriousness and that sincerity and that passion. When I think a lot of people at the time were probably saying, they're making a Superman movie, you know, uh, you know how are they going to do this? But Christopher Reeve um, just... Uh, you know, I'll always hold a place in my heart for him because I, I think he was just absolutely unmatched. And while I've enjoyed other supermen, I think I don't think there'll any, ever be anyone better than Christopher Reeve. Um, we would like to get into um, uh, your all-time genre faves. Um, here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre thing. We're just looking for titles. But if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about the Twilight Zone soon. For this season of the TOF podcast, we reduced the number of all-time faves to six categories. We may go to only asking for five faves in season five. Um, and again, these are science fiction, fantasy, or horror. So Troy will ask the question. So take it away, Troy. Okay. Y'all, y'all set there, Tom? Absolutely. All right. Here we go. So what is your fave or who is your fave genre author? I would go with Clive Barker. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. I actually have a picture of Clive right over my, my camera. Um, the answer to these next two questions does not have to come from your favorite genre author. Can you tell us what is your favorite genre novel? Uh, I was going to say the original Casino Royale, the James Bond novel, but I, maybe that's not really genre. So I will go with the original Planners of the Apes novel. Ah. Nice. How about genre shorter work? Okay, this one might be a little bit of a cheat as well. Do, do what you like. <laughs> I'm going to go with um, Batman Year One. Because oh, nice. In, in relation to kind of other graphic novels, it I read it recently and it is pretty short um, compared to other things. So I'm going with Batman Year One. Right, that's Frank Miller, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, I guess, originally um, a four-issue arc anyway that's great answer so tom what would your favorite genre film be i'm gonna go with uh the evil dead the sam raimi movie god i want to talk to you about all of these things (laughs) (laughs) um okay and how about your favorite genre tv show this one, um, I kind of <laughs> wish we could talk about because I'd be curious I, I, to see. I almost but, feel like we need a, a part two as well. I, <laughs> I, I assume I know the first one, but what, what would you say, Tom? Okay, so my favorite genre TV series is uh, the 1960s British TV show The Prisoner, starring Patrick McGowan. <laughs> that was one of our, was that our first episode, David? Number one or number two? 
it was early on, and we've also yeah. had many guests who have picked that one. This great, oh, it's cool. a great standout. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I got to say, that was my basically my real introduction to it when we did the show. I'd seen individual episodes on on CBC back in the day, but I didn't really know what was going on until I watched it all mm-hmm. together, and it blew my mind. I love it. Yeah. Um, uh, the answer to this next question does not have to come from your favorite genre show, but what would your all-time genre TV episode be? Okay, this is a bit of a strange one, but I can't even remember the title of the episode, but I'm just going purely by something where I can remember the effect it had on me, and that is um, there's an episode of Twin Peaks. Oh, my goodness. I wish I'd, I wish I'd have looked it up. I do apologize. but No problem. There's an episode of Twin Peaks where, spoilers, uh, Laura Palmer's cousin uh, gets killed. And it's just David Lynch being, you know, at the top of his game, one of the scariest episodes of television I've ever seen. And there's this, there's this thing that keeps being said in it. It's happening again. It's happening oh. again. And it's just it, something that has stuck uh struck such a chord in me over the years um but obviously not so much of a chord that i looked it up before this recording <laughs> but but it's it's that episode of twin peaks i think yeah i was a huge uh fan of of still i'm a fan of lynch's and twin peaks and mm-hmm. uh I, did you get a chance to see the uh the return series you know i saw i saw about a half of it i do have the box set here to return to I, I don't think it was what any of us were expecting, was it? No. Um, so I, I kind of drifted away from it, but I will go back. Okay, you know, I, I here's what back. I will tell you, though. If Get to at least Episode 8 or watch 8 on its own. Mm-hmm. Episode 8, I, I thought I was the only one that thought this, but I've since heard many people reference this as one of the best things they've ever seen on television. Oh, it's, wow. uh, it's I think it's primarily black and white. It mm-hmm. has... A, the first 15 minutes have no dialogue and there was a point (laughs) when I actually had to applaud in my living room watching. I could not believe how audacious this episode was. Um, Anyway, if you do get the chance, check that one out. Mm -hmm. All right. Are we there, David? Are we, are we pushing on? Yes, we are Um, on to the twilight zone. Um, Troy will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. Okay, well, thanks, David. Really excited to be giving you this Twilight Zone history as it's one of my all-time favorite shows. I told myself I would not begin an intro with either consider, if you will, or submitted for your approval So let me just start off by giving you some of the Twilight Zone by the numbers. The Twilight Zone ran from October 2nd, 1959 to June 19th, 1964 on CBS. It encompassed five seasons and 156 episodes. 92 episodes were written by Rod Serling. 21 episodes were written by Charles Beaumont. 13 episodes were written by Richard Matheson. And four episodes were highly influential and written by George Clayton Johnson, including the episode Kick the Can. 
For those that don't know, the anthology series is remembered fondly for its stories of ordinary people in extraordinary situations and its O. Henry endings. The phrase wisdom stories has been used to refer to the tales on the Twilight Zone. You can break the Twilight Zone down into different subcategories like sports stories, military stories, western stories, lost airplane stories, return to childhood stories, tales of aging and passing, space travel, astronaut stories, and alien visitor stories. But regardless of the subgenres, perhaps the most common theme on the Twilight Zone was identity and issues revolving around identity. Yet the episodes that kept people coming back for more were the stories with heart. And Rod Serling was all about heart. Rod Serling, the creator of the show, won three Emmy Awards prior to the Twilight Zone airing and two Emmy Awards and one Golden Globe for writing on the Twilight Zone. Serling was born in Syracuse, New York in 1924. He grew up in the small town of Binghamton, where his creativity was encouraged by his parents. During World War II, he served as a paratrooper. Serling later claimed that writing gave him an outlet to deal with his horrific war experiences. Now, prior to creating The Twilight Zone, Serling had faced censorship from sponsors and network heads who were afraid to deal directly with issues of social injustice. Serling realized that if he told allegorical stories subversively through science fiction, he could get his point across without sponsors or TV executives cluing in. Two Twilight Zone pilots were made. The first, entitled The Time Element, starring Martin Balsam, aired on November 28, 1958, as part of the Desilu Playhouse. Based on the success of the Desilu show, Serling's Cayuga Productions created the official Twilight Zone pilot, Where Did Everybody Go?, starring Earl Holloman. The show aired on CBS on October 2nd, 1959. Originally, the network and sponsors wanted Orson Welles to narrate the opening and closing voiceovers, but CBS found the legend's fee too prohibitive. The pilot episode, Where Did Everybody Go?, was originally produced with opening and closing voiceovers by longtime broadcaster Westbrook Van Voorhees. It was decided that Van Voorhees, who was known as the Voice of Doom, might sound a little too stern for the lighter episodes. So Serling himself stepped up as narrator. It's now impossible to imagine anyone else in this role. Serling had amassed a backlog of stories and scripts. It was his habit of dictating his scripts directly to audio tape. The popularity of the series built slowly by word of mouth. But by season three, the show had really latched on to the imagination of North Americans. Like many of the classic shows we examine on Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi, The Twilight Zone crossed over from television into other forms such as games, comics, music, and parodies on other shows. 91 issues of Twilight Zone comics were published between the years 1962 and 1979 by Dell, Goldkey, and Whitman. And in 1964, Ideal produced a Twilight Zone board game. That same year, a surf instrumental by the Marquettes utilized the Twilight Zone theme without permission. Serling sued. There are so many Simpsons Twilight Zone parodies and general Twilight Zone references in pop culture, it's hard to keep track of all of them. The Dick Van Dyke Show, Season 2, Episode 2, 
in the episode, It May Look Like a Walnut, riffed on Serling's show with aliens from the planet Twilo that steal your thumbs. That show aired February 1963 during the fourth season of The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone theme itself, with its repeating four-note motif, is a shorthand that means things have gotten weird. And, if you have to spell it out, most any English-speaking person would know what it means when you say, I feel like we're living in the Twilight Zone. In response to the success of the Twilight Zone, the other two American networks created their own knockoffs. Thriller, with Boris Karloff, ran on NBC from 1960 to 1962, while ABC's The Outer Limits aired from 1963 to 1965. By the fifth season, Serling was exhausted and ready for a break. He said that in the days of writing his Playhouse 90 scripts, he had six months to complete a script. But with The Twilight Zone, it was down to 35 to 40 hours per story. Even before the fifth season, Serling had begun to step back from his series. He devoted a chunk of his time to teaching writing to university students at Antioch College in Ohio and later at Ithaca College in upstate New York. By season five, the show's scripts felt less Serling-like, less charitable and less imaginative and more like an imitation of itself. Serling the sponsors, and CBS felt it was time to exit the Twilight Zone. Just 10 years later, Serling died at the age of 50 in the summer of 1975. Gene Roddenberry wrote, The fact that Rod Serling was a uniquely talented writer with extraordinary imagination is not our real loss. These merely describe his tools and the level of his skill. Our loss is the man. The intelligence and the conscience who use these things for us. No one could know Serling or view or read his work without recognizing his deep affection for humanity, his sympathetically intense curiosity about us, and his determination to enlarge our horizons by giving us better understanding of ourselves. In the 1980s, there was a huge renaissance of anthology TV that may have been kicked off by the success of the original Twilight Zone airing in late-night syndication. Shows of that era included George Romero's Tales from the Dark Side, Spielberg's Amazing Stories, Ray Bradbury Theatre, and the reboots of The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. In more recent years, anthology programming has seen another resurgence with the series Black Mirror, American Horror Story, Inside Number 9, Creepshow, and Jordan Peele's newest relaunch of Twilight Zone. In 2007, Rod Serling ranked number one on TV Guide's 25 Greatest Sci-Fi Legends. He was the only non-fictitious person on that list. And that, David, is our history of The Twilight Zone. Tom, can you please tell us how you were first introduced to The Twilight Zone? Absolutely. Well, when I was a kid, and we only had four channels of television, uh, of a Friday night, that's when all the best stuff was on. You know, Channel 4 over here had a comedy night, and so you would, and it had, you know, a mixture of American, British shows, but like the good ones. So, you know, all after nine o'clock, post-watershed, so they could do what they wanted. And 
So you would watch through those, but then I would stay up later on because there was all cool stuff going on overnight. Things like Godzilla movies, uh, all kinds of stuff that just never got played during the day. And young Tom Elliott would sit there at two in the morning and watch the Twilight Zone. They played episodes of the Twilight Zone in the middle of the night. Now, I'm not sure whether they paid much attention to the order that they were playing them in or anything like that. They just kind of put them out there. So when you're half asleep at two o'clock in the morning in a darkened house watching the Twilight Zone for the first time, I think that's probably the best way to experience it. Um, and I would tape the episodes and sometimes I would watch them back in the morning and it'd be like, my goodness, this, this doesn't feel like the same episode because it's almost like, you know, the, the kind of half asleep nature of watching them just added so much and everything like that. And I, I think that's how I got into it. But then when the DVDs came out years later, that's when I, you know, kind of rediscovered it and, and rekindled that love of it. Now, I had a similar experience with it as late night viewing. Um, you know, I'd, I'd heard of the show and this was around, uh, I don't know, early 80s for me. Um, and I was just starting to get into certain speculative things like Harlan Elliston. Um, I loved his short stories. I loved, uh, I guess it's slightly later, Books of Blood by, by Clive Barker. And um, I think I had read Stephen King's Dance Macabre and you know the section on Twilight Zone really intrigued me so when a local channel started playing the Twilight Zone in late night syndication um, I fell in love with it and um, my parents had a color TV but um, I had my own little black and white set in, in the basement and so it didn't matter that I was watching a black and white show you know mm-hmm. um, and I just really was taken by it immediately everything about the atmosphere of the show the continuity of having serling open and close the shows um I, I thought about it as as i was going through the twilight zone companion yet again um like what were the earliest ones i saw little people stood out that one really um felt like it must have been one of the earliest ones and um the other, well, the other two that I that I think were two of the first was lateness of the hour and ninety years without sleep, but the one that that like knocked it out of the park for me, and I thought I love this show was uh, Third Stone from the Sun. Um, after that episode, I was like all all in, um, and I guess it was a few years later when the magazine came out and I started uh, picking it up. Um, as well. How about you, David? What was your uh, what's your earliest memory of Twilight Zone? It's probably similar to you guys. Like, like for me, it was um, watching a lot of these kinds of things that were from the '60s, like the original Star Trek in syndication and reruns in the '70s. So for me, Star Trek, Combat, F Troop, um, Lost in Space, and so on. So Twilight Zone was certainly in there. And I guess probably something like Eye of the Beholder um, would have stood out as one of the early ones. Like they did stuff just like in that um, there were some episodes that just seemed so artistic and so brilliant in the classic Trek sphere that almost seemed theatrical. 
almost like a theater production, whether you do, did stuff with lighting and with effects, just to like the empath, for example, where they have the different lights and shadows and, and what they're trying to do. That almost seemed to me like a Twilight Zone episode. But, um, certainly with, um, uh, Eye of the Beholder, they do a lot with trying to do the effect of, you know, not giving away what's going to happen in it. Um, now we can go on to, I guess, uh, look at the seasons. So Tom, what we were hoping to do is give, you know, an overview. Unlike mm-hmm. if, and if people certainly, you know, uh, want more, we are glad to direct them to your show where they can get an episode, <laughs> uh, uh, per, per episode, I guess. Um, but what I wanted to do was just sort of like gloss over the seasons. Um, I sort of had picked some things that I thought were highlights. Um, and also ones that were just notable, not necessarily the best episodes. But uh, if you f- would like to at any point, you know, if there's something that you feel like I, I've missed, please, you know, uh, give a shout out to those episodes. Um, uh, because we assume that there is a, a generation of folks out there who do not know uh, the show, at least not the way that we do. So f- for me, in season one, it consisted of 36 episodes and it first aired in uh, 1959, the 1959-60 season. Um, and the episodes that really stood out for me, first of all, were uh, The Lonely, starring Jack Warden, which was written by Serling. And that's, I'm sure, one of the earliest ones I saw as well. Uh, Walking Distance, starring Gig Young, also written by Serling. The Hitchhiker, starring Inger Stevens as Nan Adams. Uh, that was written by Serling, uh, based on a short story by Lucille Fletcher. Uh, that's probably one of my all-time faves. Uh, Time Enough at Last, one that I think people always think of when they do think of The Twilight Zone, starred Burgess Meredith, uh, written by Serling, um, based on a short story by Lynn Venable. Third from <laughs> the Sun, yeah. Third from the Sun, starring... Fritz Weaver, um, written by Serling, and uh, it's from a short story by Richard Matheson. The Purple Testament, starring Dick Young, by Serling. The classic, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, probably in everybody's top ten, starring Claude Atkins, which I guess he's got a Planet of the Apes uh, crossover, doesn't he? And uh, that was uh, also by Rod. A Stop at Willoughby, by Serling. And uh, then I have two notes here. One is for I Shot an Arrow by Serling. Not necessarily one of the best episodes, but because of sort of its connection to Planet of the Apes, it feels like it's, it's, it's somehow essential. Um, and this one also has a, an interesting uh, uh, history, right, Tom, in that supposedly Rod bought the idea uh from a, a woman and from what i understand it perhaps was uh it was an exchange for a fridge that's one story that i've read do you know anything about how that the truth behind that one well troy i think i probably knew it at some point but when, <laughs> when i covered this episode that's probably about 10 years ago now so um i i think if 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 you're saying it's true, then I'll i'll go with what you're well, saying on that <laughs> i thank you for your honesty and uh you know Anybody who is a Twilight Zone uh, fan, you you know, we will also point you to the Twilight Zone companion. I'm looking back at my 
my book. Uh, it's by Mark Zickery, and I think it's in at least its third edition. And both David and I bought I bought a new edition of it. Um, I had mine since the early '80s, um, and I I really love that book, and it's a great resource. Um, anyway, my last one, which I, I had a, a, a note for for the Big Tall Wish, um, for the Twilight Zone, was the Big Tall Wish. Um, I don't think it's like classic, but um, it's a, it is a great Serling story, and it's notable uh, in that it's you know Zering in fifty nine nineteen sixty with uh, three black leads. Um, so um, let me just say that uh, for that season, Serling won uh, an Emmy for outstanding writing achievement in drama, and. Uh, the show also won a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Um, but but let me ask you then, Tom. So so of this season, the one that kicks it off, what what are some of your favorites? What are, what are the ones that that maybe either we've mentioned or haven't mentioned that you think people should not miss? Well, I'm going to mention the very first episode. Where is everybody? Because I don't think it's one that will feature on many people's top ten lists, and I, I think. You know, we all probably like it, um, but I'm not sure it really gets mentioned in the same breath as things like Time Enough at Last or Walking Distance and so on. But I think it's a great one to go back to and reevaluate because I see watching The Twilight Zone as going on a journey. You are, you know, you're, you're going through stories that are there to scare you. You're going through stories that are there to teach you things, to talk about things about the human condition and so on. But the good thing about Where Is Everybody, it is mainly a one-man show starring Earl Holloman. And the beginning of, of the show is Earl Holloman just walking into this deserted town. And as a metaphor for us, the audience, starting our Twilight Zone journey, I don't think there's any better way to do it. You know, it's just like, okay, we're all heading into the twilight zone now. Now the, the character in that, he has his, his story in there, his adventure in there. And, you know, as, as you mentioned in that intro, I, I was so lucky to speak to Earl Holloman, you know, the first ever actor to be in the twilight zone, which one of the most momentous moments of my life, I think, cause he was amazing. Um, or I think, you know, like I said, it, it's not going to be on many people's top ten list, but I, I just don't think it's it's one um, that, that people should ignore, and it's definitely one to go back and uh, and reevaluate. You know, yeah, and it's interesting how you uh, mention it being like a journey, and mm -hmm. we we really you know we start with this character who enters what seems like uh, an abandoned town, and you know, it's like us beginning the journey as well, the, whole, the, the journey of the of, of the series. Um, and yes, I would definitely recommend people check out your Earl Holloman um, interview. Uh, that and the Bill Mummy one were 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 sort of standouts of the of the series so far. So thanks for those, Tom. Thank you. You know, but, I can take no credit for those. It's just when you got two people like that who've been in the business so long and have so many great stories. All you need to do is kind of wind them up and let them go. And that's, yeah. you know, you've yeah. got a great show. So, yeah. Unlike, 
unlike Mickey Rooney on the commentary <laughs> tracks of uh, of his jockey episode. I think I'm glad you I'm glad you added that actually some clips of that on the show because I hadn't listened to it. I've got the the DVDs, but I hadn't heard his. Uh, is sort of um, cantankerous uh, <laughs> commentary. David, you have to check it out at some point because he, he, I don't know why he agreed to do the commentary because he basically refuses to talk about anything <laughs> on wow. it. He's, he's just so ornery. Hi, this is Mickey Rooney. You unlock this. You're watching The Twilight Zone. Do you remember much about this episode? No, I don't remember. Oh, we're watching it together for the first time. I don't care anything about it. What today's audience doesn't understand, and maybe we could put this in context, you're playing a jockey, but they don't understand that for many years, anytime anybody said anything about a short, you were the butt of jokes. Well, I, I, I'm tired of that. Oh, had you met Rod ever, Sir? Yeah. Do you remember where or no, interaction? No, I don't remember anything about it. I wish I could help you. Uh, Dave, did you have anything, you know, that you wanted to mention about the season one episodes? Yeah, uh, for me, um, Time Enough at Last, which has also been fairly well parodied, I think. Like people, and also people just remember it because there's Burgess Meredith with the, with the issues with, you know, there's no one on earth, which is almost like one of those things you make a wish, like in the, in the, um, uh, episode of, uh, X Files where, Mulder wishes for peace on earth. Of course, that means no one is on earth, you know, and right. that's very peaceful, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So, uh, with him, the only thing that I thought was a bit odd was that depending on what his prescription is, if he's the last person on earth, why can't he just break into or, or, or find some place that sells glasses and just go and try to find a set of glasses <laughs> that matches close enough to his prescription? Like, I didn't understand that part of it. Come on. Come on. Sorry, it's that was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, us, yeah go ahead. <laughs> from what I understand, and, and I likely came upon this information from Tom's podcast, but uh, from what I understand that uh, Surly and Kyogre Productions received uh, basically hate mail for that episode, that, that some viewers found it uh, too sadistic. That they uh, now was that something you well, again? I won't do that to you, Tom. Like you say, it's, it's who knows what you said ten years ago. But um, yeah, it's it is it's a, sort of a kick in the stomach. Uh, the ending, if you if you don't know it, but now it feels like how do you not even know that because it's been around in the culture so long? Um, shall we move on to season two, gents? Let's do it. All right, so so my highlights and notable notes uh, for season two, uh, we get 29 episodes. Uh, it airs the following season, 6061. Um, uh, we get the new iconic theme music by Marius Constant. Um, the first episode that I mentioned is not necessarily one of my favorites, but it's one that I thoroughly enjoy. And the first time I saw it too, uh, it just felt so unlike what I'd ever seen with uh, the Twilight Zone. It was Mr. Dingle, the strong uh, Burgess Meredith, I believe his second go around uh, on the show and Don Rickles um, where Burgess Meredith's character is is bullied by Don Rickles, and uh, you have sort of aliens overseeing it, which actually the aliens sort of watching them remind me of the Simpsons aliens who uh, who are like looking down on us. Anyway, I, I said it, it's it's silly, but and it's by Serling, but I'll take it. Um, 
then we get into the classics like the eye of the beholder uh with uh well at least in one shot with donna douglas aka ellie may of the beverly hillbillies uh this is an all-time classic um one that i've just recently sort of given its due i don't know why nick of time never grabbed me the way it did on my recent rewatch but that was with william shatner uh we also get uh stafford rep aka chief o'hare from batman so again i had to love that and it's uh it's a matheson script um but it's it's there's a subtlety to that episode and um you know there's not like a huge twist to it uh it, but it's i found it was just a really well done episode we get The Howling Man, with, starring John Carradine. Uh, that's a, a Beaumont script. Back there with uh, Russell Johnson, a.k.a. The Professor from Gilligan's Island. Uh, this is the, uh, the Lincoln story where uh, he goes back in time to try to prevent the assassination of President Lincoln. And um, uh, we're going to get into how things, uh, modern works have been connected to the twilight zone and a, a stephen king novel that i love is 11 now clearly this is not the first time there, there was the idea of going back in time to prevent something but uh, there seems to be some real connections between the two there but i still love that novel by king um the invader is with agnes moorhead this was one of those ones where i wanted to stand up and applaud when i when i was watching it the performance is great um I'm not going to ruin it. I'm just going to say it's one of those ones like uh, the Earl Holloman pilot where we have primarily one actor uh, carrying the entire show. Um, I'm going to move on. That was also, if I didn't mention, by Matheson. Uh, Night of the Meek with Art Carney and John Fielder. David and I touched on this on our last Christmas episode. Um, it's uh oh yeah right john fielder was the voice of piglet in the in the winnie the pooh series from disney um and it was a, clearly a serling script it's one of the most serling-esque scripts out there will the real martian please stand up uh also by serling and i love sort of there's a reference to bradbury in there in that in that episode um where one of the characters says oh it's so sci-fi like so it's so bradbury <laughs> Um, my last episode that I mentioned for season two is The Obsolete Man. Again, for me, a standout. Also, Burgess Meredith, Fritz Weaver, um, a great Serling script. So in this episode, uh, in order to cut um, the cost of the episodes, CBS had six episodes shot on videotape. Uh, I'm not sure if I ever saw those in syndication. Uh, or not, but um, you know they're okay. But they definitely look different, and they are definitely uh, limited by what they can do uh, by being shot in studio. Um, so CBS saved five thousand dollars per episode on those videotaped episodes. Uh, another Emmy for writing, and one um, a one for George Clemens cinematography. Guys, uh, season two, what do you think? Well, uh, if I may just mention a couple that you've already sure. mentioned, Troy. Uh, I think it's interesting that you you say that Nick of Time maybe didn't have that big an impact on you first time round. And I think that's not unusual unusual for people to say that because it kind of lives in the shadow of 
Shatner's other episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is the big iconic one. But then when you go back to Nick of Time, it's just so great, isn't it? That it really is. They, they build up this tension and this suspense just purely by the two actors interacting with each other, uh, William Shatner and I forget the actress's name now. But, um, you know, they are, they are kind of bouncing off this little napkin holder with, you know, the little devil's head on it. Um, but there's no big bads. There's no big baddie that they're kind of fighting against. It's all built up between the two of them. And I, I think that's great. And uh, just to mention as well, Night of the Meek, I can, you know, I completely agree. And I think maybe underappreciated in terms of Christmas stories as a whole, because for me, a great Christmas story is it's a story that can be retold. I mean, how many versions of a Christmas carol do we have? There must be hundreds. And, you know, Night of the Meek was remade for the 80s Twilight Zone, which was good. But I kind of feel like, you know, it'd be nice if it was done again in some other ways, because I think it is a timeless Christmas story, you know, a story purely about, you know, the human spirit and decency and goodness and, yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I wanted to say about uh, Nick of Time, you know, that that uh, slow burn that mm -hmm. you get with Shatner portraying Obsession, even though it's a 22-minute uh, program, but uh, it, it feels like it, it felt realistic, you know, that, that amping up to, you know, he can't stop doing this. He just can't stop doing this. Um, and I suggested to David, I said, oh, wouldn't it be cool if they actually gave him the same character name that he has in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet? And this was sort of what led him to his breakdown. <laughs> yeah. David, did you have any thoughts on season two? Um, with Eye of the Beholder, it's our concept of beauty or how we think, like the majority decides things, what we mm. all like, what we don't, you know, whether or not we have torn jeans or how we wear clothes or what we wear, what we do or how we look and how we feel and all that stuff. And there's also a wonderful uh, parody of it on Saturday Night Live with uh, Pamela Anderson. Uh, as the beauty that they basically redid that. Saturday Night Live has done a few parodies. My favorite one is Twenty Thousand, uh, the uh, Twenty Thousand Feet, and the uh, the Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, um, which is just hilarious. So it definitely is is something there. And Mr. Dingle the Strong, just I do like the occasional episode that's just silly. Like it's just odd. And funny and unusual. You don't want to have stuff that's dour. Oh, everything has a twist, or everything is a certain type of format, format or formula. So I like things that are sort of outside the box. So yeah, those two do stand out for me. Yeah, and that was my take on it when I first saw it too. I think I might have even uh, called my best friend. Actually, you know him, David Pat, who is our, our longtime listener. <laughs> And uh, at the time, and I said, you got to check out the Twilight Zone. This is a really odd one. It's like so un-Twilight Zone. Uh, so let's move on to season three then. Season three, we get 37 episodes. It aired during 1961-62 season. Um, my highlights and notes for this season, um, I'll put two there. Two, two, the episode two 
with Elizabeth Montgomery and Charles Bronson, again, never really struck me. And for some reason, this time around, I was I was taken with it. Um, and so maybe I want other people to just check it out. Maybe it's slid off your radar. Um, it was written and directed by Montgomery Pittman. Um, we get, again, a classic, It's a Good Life with Bill Mooney and Cloris Leachman. Um, it's it's just perfect. It's just a perfect bit of TV. Although I think there have I have heard some discussion about not liking the Jack in the Box effects from some people. I love it. It looks weird, and that weirdness to me is perfect. Um, I, I'll ask you guys about that a little bit later. But um, that, that was by written by Rod Serling, based on a Jeremy Bixby story. The Shelter. This is also one that. Um, I don't know if I missed it in syndication, but I, I, I love this episode. David and I both, I think, gave it a lot of love when we were talking about our rewatch. Another one that for some reason in season two that I don't really recall much, but is now, I think, one of the best is Death's Head Revisited. Again, a Serling script uh, set in Dachau. Um, just a really powerful thing that you know comes from the pen of Serling. Uh, I always think, you know, there's really nobody around that's like Serling anymore. And the closest I can get is Aaron Sorkin. And when you hear a Sorkin script, um, you know who wrote it and in a good way. (laughs) And I just wish that Aaron Sorkin wrote genre stuff because I think that's as close as we'll ever really get to Serling again um, in our lifetime. I'm moving on to five characters in search of an exit by Serling, uh, based on a short story by Marvin Patel, uh, To Serve Man, again, one of the all-time classics, uh, with Lloyd Bochner, Richard Keel, uh, written by Serling, uh, based on a short story by Damon Knight, A Quality of Mercy with Dean Stockwell, Leonard Nimoy, Albert Salmi, uh, who was in, I think, three, I'm going to guess three, Tom, because it can't be four, because that would equal... Meredith and Klugman, right? So You're right, it's three. Uh-huh. Okay, there we go. Um, uh, a Game of Pool uh, with Jack Klugman, Jonathan Winters. Um, that's a script by George Clayton Johnson. And actually, I may have more, have more in season three than any season. Uh, I'm not sure of the math. I'll have to go back and look. But anyway, Kick the Can by George Clayton Johnson, which was adapted in the uh, Twilight Zone film. Uh, that was the Spielberg segment. I sing the body electric. Now, this is one that we can talk about uh, a, a little bit uh, later, if you like, uh, Tom, um, because I, from what I understand, there was some tension between Bradbury and Serling. Uh, this is the 100th episode, and it was written by Ray Bradbury. Um, and it was... Um, we have uh, David Whale, who folks would know as Larry Tate, but he was also in a few Twilight Zones. Um, Little Girl Lost by Richard Matheson. Uh, of course, I saw this after I'd seen Poltergeist, and I made the immediate connection. Uh, we get The Dummy with Cliff Robertson. That's uh, by Serling, based on a short story uh, by Lee Pope. And... Let's mention Cavender is coming because it is just such an odd thing in in the, the uh, sort of 
whole body of the Twilight Zone. Uh, this was with Carol Burnett, and basically it's a pilot uh, for another CBS show. Um, and it just feels so weird. And it's, it has nothing to do with Carol Burnett being in it. She's wonderful, but it's, it's just it's just the sort of this weird fish out of water. And the last one I have is The Changing of the Guard with Donald Pleasance by Serling. That's one of my faves. But enough of me, guys. Uh, let's, let's hear from you, Tom, about uh, season three, the middle, the middle of the Twilight Zone run. Such a strong season, isn't it? You know, um, don't get me wrong. Every season has its turkeys, as mm-hmm. Rod used to call them. But um, I, I think those first three seasons especially are just so strong and I think you mentioned It's a Good Life, which is one of my great favorites. And again, I got to speak to Bill Moomy, which was amazing. But it just shows you that, you know, Sailing was a great writer of his own stuff, but that was based on a story by Jerome Bixby. But Sailing was also a great adapter of other people's things. And some of the best Twilight Zones are Rod Sailing, often making other people's stories better. You know, that's always going to be subjective, but... When you look down the list and and you actually, I, I've looked at a lot of the original stories and I've got one coming up on the next um, Twilight Zone pod, podcast, uh, The Old Man in the Cave, which is based on a story that Sailing just made better for the show. Um, so, so yeah, it's a good life. That's a great one. But uh, one you didn't mention was The Midnight Sun, which I think is a great example of you know, we all talk about Rod Sailing, but how on point everyone else was on that show a lot of the time as well. This, it's a black and white show where the earth is is moving closer to the sun and everyone is basically, you know, they're going to die because, they're, you know, they're moving closer and closer to the sun. So for the back, black and white show to be able to convey the heat of that, um, it's a it's a wonderful marriage of imagery and this ticking death clock music that is just so great. And and I think, you know, hats off to Rod Sailing, but hats off to everyone else in the show as well, because it really was a great collaboration. That is so true. And one of the things that we talked about in the films that we mentioned, uh, you know, is is that you don't get a great film without every element in it working perfectly you know Mm -hmm. be it the the score or lighting or effects or whatever um and this is this is i'm sure one of the reasons why the twilight zone um remains with us you know it's it stands the test of time and you know you all those elements that you have that are iconic be it the stories themselves or or rods opening and closings, um, the the theme, you know, and the variations of the theme and the music throughout, uh, and then and then just the visuals for the opening, which varies from season to season, but it's they're all classic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're all wonderfully done. David, uh, do you want to touch on some season three highlights for you? Um, for me, I do. It's a nice quote from the Twilight Zone companion referring to the episode two and Charles Bronson, they referred to it as Bronson broad and muscular with a face like an eroded cliff. I thought that description of Charles Bronson is so perfect. Um, The shelter is probably my favorite episode of, 
uh, you know, the whole idea of paranoia and, and the mob and, and what happens. And of course, when they find out what actually is happening, how people relate to each other, because they're never the same after that is great. To Serve Man has one of the greatest parodies of any kind of parody from the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, where they had, if they find the book. The sequence is something like cooking, and it was cooking humans, cooking for humans. How to cook for 40 humans or something like cooking, that. Cooking, yeah, cooking 40 humans, cooking for 40 humans. Like the whole yeah. thing where they keep blowing off the dust and revealing more of the thing was so brilliantly done as such an homage and, and loving tribute to that episode. They thought we were going to eat them. <laughs> Good God. Is this some kind of joke? No. They're serious. Well, why were you trying to make us eat all the time? Make you eat? We merely provided a sumptuous banquet. And frankly, you people made pigs of yourselves. I slaved in the kitchen for days for you people. And... Well, if you wanted to make Serac the preparer cry, mission accomplished. You aren't the only beings who, who have emotions, you know. A kick the can. I recently watched last night in prep for this episode, the Twilight Zone movie. Um, I had missed it and I had purposely did not want to see it because of what had happened with Vic Morrow and the two children. So I had basically did not want to watch it except with this podcast I did. And they had kick the can. Now, but that was Scottman Crothers, right? Uh, Scottman Crothers, excuse me, in that, right or not? Yes, that's right. It was, um, yeah. And I was just crying, like, uh, my wife passed away, uh, in February, uh, February 21st. And it was still, it's still a bit raw. And having that, you know, where they can actually remember back to childhood and when things were better and just, you know, older people feeling young again, which is such, for me, such a powerful, uh, moment. Sunnyvale Rest, a dying place for ancient people who have forgotten the fragile magic of youth. A dying place for those who have forgotten that childhood, maturity, and old age are curiously intertwined and not separate. A dying place for those who have grown too stiff in their thinking to visit the Twilight Zone. So, Tom, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was Icing the Body Electric, the 100th episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, and that's the only Bradbury we get. Um, and I understand there was some, some tension or some animosity or something between Serling and Bradbury. And now what I find fascinating is that those two might be, you know, I don't ever want to say people are like the two best in their field, but these are two of the people who most popularize science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, that sort of made it accessible for folks. Um, so I found it odd that, that, that there might be some, some sort of tension. Can you, can you expand on what was going on there? There's, there's quite a lot to that story. Um, and I, I cover it in an episode called Bradbury sailing and the body electric. Now 
you know, Ray Bradbury was kind of in the background a lot when the show was being developed, and it was always expected that one day he would write some stories for it, you know. And uh, basically, he he wrote this episode, but then he just wasn't happy with the end product. Um, and there was a scene specifically that he he just wasn't happy that it wasn't there or or a kind of thread going through the story or something like that. And after that, he, he kind of cursed Sailing for not putting it in. He, w- he accused Sailing of plagiarism for a lot of the stuff that had already been on the Twilight Zone. And, you know, that that's at its most basic. There's a lot of back and forth about this. I think Sailing was very humble about it, you know, and you know, didn't want to tell stories out of school, but I spoke to an author called, um, I forget her name, Amy Ball Johnson, who researched this whole thing and um, actually met Ray Bradbury and talked to him about it. And Bradbury, it's amazing. I've, I've seen him on a Charles Beaumont documentary where if you mention sailing, he immediately gets quite looks quite angry about him and so it, it it just kind of blew up in this is this very strange way and bradbury never wrote for the twilight zone again but there's some very odd wrinkles to it as well in that you know bradbury cursed sailing for not putting this scene in i sing the body electric and you know it's about this robot grandmother but then years later i think it was in the 80s bradbury wrote another version of it uh, called, I think it was, I can't remember, but I think it was called something like the robot grandmother, you know, something like that. Mm. Um, and that scene wasn't in that either. You know, he didn't even put the scene in the, his own <laughs> TV movie. So what's all that about? Um, yeah. and, and I think, and these are not my words, you know, because I, I don't know these two people, but Amy Ball Johnson kind of, was under the impression that there was a certain amount of jealousy from Ray Bradbury's part, because while Bradbury kind of ruled the roost in terms of written fiction, he could never really break television or movies in the way Sailing did. There were, there was, there was stuff that was made for sure, but I don't think anything was kind of made that is revered as much as the Twilight Zone is. And I think as a, I find this a bit, a bit naughty, to be honest. When the 80s Twilight Zone was made, Bradbury has said all this stuff about sailing, and Bradbury either wrote or allowed a Bradbury story to be used in the 80s Twilight Zone. And this is after Rod has passed, and Bradbury said all this stuff about him. And I kind of think that's, you know, if you don't like the guy... You know, you've you've said all this bad stuff about him, but then to put your story in a remake of his show, I kind of feel like that's a little disrespectful. So, but you know, so yeah, there's there's quite a lot to it. That's just the Cliff Notes version, you know. Well, thanks for sharing that because I, I felt like uh, you know it needed to be addressed. Um, you know, how do you do a show about uh, sci-fi and and sort of pass up on the connection between these two giants of the field 
So we're about to move on to season four, but it's important to mention that at the end of the third season, producer Buck Houghton had left the show. So that wasn't the only change um, for season four. CBS originally dropped the show and then picked it up as a January replacement show. Um, So we only get 18 episodes for one thing. Um, And also, you know, Rod at this point steps back from his production involvement. He begins teaching at Antioch College in upstate New York. And we get these hour-long episodes. The good news is we also get this iconic uh, opening with uh, the door and the eyeball and Einstein's equation, the pocket watch. So we've got a, an amazing look to the show. Um, but uh, it, it seems like the show generally suffers from the hour-long format. And I will probably get into this more in our next episode, which I think was also a downfall of some of the more recent uh, reboots of the show. The Twilight Zone seems to work really well as a 30-minute program. Okay, so only 18 shows produced for season four. And um, these, for me, are the the, the standouts or, or notables. We have uh, Death Ship with Klugman. It's also written by Matheson. He's Alive with Dennis Hopper um, and written by Serling. Miniature with Robert Duvall, um, based on a Beaumont script. Printer's Devil with Burgess Meredith, another Beaumont script. And I feel it's it's um, Meredith's best performance, but uh, that's probably disputable. And here's one that is not necessarily well-loved, but, but one that I think stands out, and that's uh, The Bard. Um, and we get to see Burt Reynolds as Rocky Rhodes, which is, is a sort of a Marlon Brando parody. Um, and that was written by Serling. I'm a huge Julie Newmar fan, so I had to mention of late, I think, of Cliffordville. Not necessarily a, a great episode, um, but uh, hey, we get Julie Newmar, also a, a Serling episode. Um, I'm also going to note that Alan Napier, Alfred from Batman, plays the captain on the episode The Passage of the Lady Anne. Um, so, contentious season four, Tom. What are your thoughts? Mm. Well, here's the thing. Do do I think Twilight Zone works better as a half-hour show? Absolutely. Uh, but am I disappointed that season four is hour longs no because i I think it adds to the lore of the show you know it's an interesting talking point and i think there's still good stuff to be mined here because one one of my favorites and one of the best twilight zones i think is an episode called on thursday we leave for home and it stars james whitmore and he's the kind of leader of this group who have who have tried to leave earth to go to this other planet but when they get there it's really inhospitable they have this terrible life and he kind of leads them and keeps them going and keeps them surviving. But then, you know, they, they manage to contact the ship on earth. Who's going to come and get them. And it's, it's, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen it, I, I won't spoil anything, but, uh, would I want to sacrifice a minute of this episode? Absolutely not. I think it's, it's one of the best things sailing did in the twilight zone. And I, I absolutely love it. Even even speaking about it now, I, I just want to go back and watch it because James Whitmore is fantastic in it. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting talking point. The kind of episode length because 
you know, a, a good story is a good story. And I think there's, you know, maybe they struggled to kind of adapt at that point, but sometimes they still hit it out of the park, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, there's something about the one hour episodes that I enjoy that it almost feels like, um, you know, one of those films from that era that would have been like uh, maybe a, uh, an hour and 20 minutes long or something. Like it feels like a, a short film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, like I, particularly love Duvall's performance and Dennis Hopper's performance in, in the two episodes that they were in. And oh, yeah. those feel like, you know, I could pop that in and watch it like a movie. Um, and, and actually, the thing is, is sorry. No, no, go ahead, Tom. No, go I, was, ahead. I was going to say, and the thing is, I've always said my favorite Twilight Zone movie is Planet of the Apes, you know? <laughs> yes. So, yes. so, you know, it, it can work. Yeah. And I'm you know, years ago, I'm sure you've seen this years ago, you were able to uh, find online that that Twilight Zone version of Planet of the Apes, where they made mm. it black and white, they cut it down to 30 minutes. And somehow they even edited together a Serling uh, intro and outro. Yeah. Um, God, I loved that. I would still love I wish somebody like 20th Century Fox would, would I guess no, there's going to be an ownership issue. But anyway, I would love to have that because I, I can never find that online anymore. I think uh, yeah, yeah, somebody Fox or somebody, uh, you know, made sure that that's not out there anymore, but it was brilliant. Well, you know, there are certain things that, that just scare us like dolls that can talk. And in this case, and mannequins and stuff, but with miniature and Robert Duvall is one of my favorite actors. I loved him in um, true grit and almost every other performance he's been in. But in this, where you're actually in a dollhouse is just such a, you know, that idea of perspective and being that small is, it's, it's, it's a bit scary and haunting at the same time. Yeah. Well, we move on to season five, sadly, the final season of the original Twilight Zone. We got 36 episodes in the 63, 64 season. And so let me give you some of my highlights, if you will. Um, I have In Praise of Pip with Jack Klugman and Bill Mooney by Serling. The Masks by Serling. Nightmare of 20,000 Feet with Shatner, a script by Matheson. The Last Night of a Jockey I've added here uh, with Mickey Rooney uh, by Serling. And again, if you have the DVDs, please check out the uh, Rooney rude commentary. Uh, Living Doll. Uh, again, a classic, and it lives through it through parodies uh, with Telly Savalas um, by Jerry Saul and uh, Charles Beaumont. You Drive, an episode I always forget about, but being a huge fan of Stephen King and uh, Christine was one of my first favorite books. I mean, this is essentially uh, the makings of Christine. Um, uh, it was by Earl Hammer Jr. The Encounter with George Takei and Neville Brand. Uh, it essentially feels like a, a stage play, a one-act stage play, um, but it, it just felt very different, um, and I thought it needed a note here. Um, and then, when, of course, we get the non-Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone episode, An Occurrence at Owl Creek. It was written and directed by Robert Enrico, based on a classic Ambrose Spears short story. Uh, the short French film... Uh, won first prize at the 1962 Cannes Film Festival. Serling's narration was added, 
the episode was used to cut costs by producing um, uh, another episode. They just basically flew it in and, and, you know, it became a Twilight Zone, sort of an ersatz Twilight Zone episode. After airing as a Twilight Zone, it was nominated and won the Oscar for Best Live Action Short Film of 1963. And that is our season five highlights, or at least uh, the ones that struck me. Uh, what do you think there, Tom? Anything you would add? Anything you'd want to comment on? I think the general opinion of season five is that it is where, you know, the, the show was starting to lose steam. Or I think, you know, I think Sailing was genuinely getting burned out at this point. This is a man who'd, who'd written, you know, a huge amount of the Twilight Zones. But there's still some classics in here, you know, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet and so on. I can't com comment too far because I am currently up to the next one coming out as a living doll. And after that is Old Man in the Cave. That's the episode I'm working on now. Now, I never watch ahead in the show because I like to come to each episode as fresh as I can. Um, and considering I've been doing the podcast for like 11 or 12 years now, there's some of these episodes that I haven't seen at all or haven't seen in over 11 or 12 years. So, um, so the, there's a lot I haven't got into, but I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to an occurrence at Owl Creek Ridge because I tend to use a lot of clips from the episodes in the podcast. Mm -hmm. But right. if I remember rightly, no one says a word in that, in that short <laughs> film, do they? So I might have to be a bit creative with that one. Yeah. Oh man. I love your discipline. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I tend to need to uh, chew my food a little bit better. I think sometimes, but that's a, it's a great approach. Hmm. David, any thoughts on, on these episodes? Well, with Shatner, he was in a few, like, there's a number of recurring, um, uh, beyond, you know, Burgess Meredith and some of the more famous uh, Jack Klugman and so on. There's been a number of uh, actors and actresses that came back and did multiple episodes. And with William Shatner, he's in a number of very good ones. And with the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, just his reactions and I was thinking that this would have been before he got cast uh, because Jeffrey Hunter wasn't available for the second pilot for the, the classic track. Um, and he came in. I just thought that Shatner was more known for the judgment at Nuremberg and maybe a few other things. And he was also did some Shakespeare in, in Canada, but um, uh, the fact that he was in these shows and did so well in them, they could almost see Captain Kirk in these performances, like the range and how good William Shatner is as an actor beyond all the others. And, and a lot of these things, like you would see Leonard Nimoy and all these different things. You would see what, what is combat F troop, um, uh, Trek, uh, uh, Twilight Zone. A lot of the recurring actors just moved from show to show playing various roles. And, and there was even a comment, I think I don't have it at, at hand right now, but there was a comment in, the Twilight Zone companion about that, 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 you know, just there are only so many actors and actresses out there and you, and they just kept coming back. But that's my comment. And, you know, that is one of the great appeals of an anthology show too, is that you're not relying on the same situations, the same actors, the same locations. I mean, it, it's clearly is a huge challenge to a production to uh, keep being creative and, and, uh, 
and have a program that that you want. That's probably why uh, really no anthology show has has lasted that long, and a five season run is pretty remarkable, especially in that era where, like, I always think back to to the sixties and some of my favorite shows um, from the the color era of the sixties are uh, Star Trek. Um, the Batman and the Monkeys. Now I'm thinking of my childhood, basically when I say these that that. But all three of those shows, which live on now, which we all remember well, you know, only had two or three season runs. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, they're still with us. Shows just unless they were a western like uh, Gunsmoke, didn't tend to 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 have that long of a life. So f- five years for a production of an anthology show is pretty remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah, it ahead. was uh, always in danger of cancellation, you know. But it, it it always managed to to hold, you know, hold on and and keep going uh, until season five when it, it it just, you know, maybe maybe Rod was okay with it going at that point. Yeah. But there was a season six planned, but maybe he just kind of thought, you know what, I've put the work in. Maybe it's time to chill out for a bit. That's right. And as we will see in our next episode, uh, Rod sort of does pick up um, the offer in a, in a few years down the road and revisits Anthology TV. That's our Twilight Zone episode part one. We'll be back with Tom for the second part. Remember to catch us on your favorite podcast provider. Um, Spotify is one of the ways to go. Our website is 2numeric2of.ca. And Facebook, a great place to check us out because you can interact, uh, leave comments, uh, see what else we have to offer. That's Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi on Facebook. Please do all of the things. Subscribe, tell a friend, stop, drop, and roll. That's it for today, right, David? Yeah, I am David Clink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. The Twilight Zone has been brought to you by Oasis Filter Cigarettes. The tobacco is soothed for the softest taste of all, and menthol misting makes it so. I'm going to say that again. By the way, I actually, in my first draft, I said he won one golden glove. (laughs) Instead of golden globe. Anyway, which I think was a typo. Okay.